This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We're continuing our sermon series in Ephesians. And today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 14. And today we're going to be talking about God's love and how we know that God loves us. And we're going to be doing so through the terms of election and predestination. I know, touchy subjects, right? Uh, And if you're visiting with us today, I mean, you got like a very Presbyterian service. We baptized a bunch of babies. We're going to be talking about Calvinism. This is us. But there's a couple of things I want to say in regards to this. Uh, I grew up, I was born Roman Catholic, I grew up in a Calvinist Presbyterian church, and then I went to an undergraduate school in Chicago to study theology. And there I had a lot of very intense, sometimes, um, what's the word, aggressive conversations with some brothers and sisters in Christ about Calvinism and Arminianism. Now these are theological topics that many of you probably know, and if you don't, I'm going to give you a definition here in a second. But here's what I found myself doing as a Calvinist that was raised that way. I I immediately went to the terms heresy. Heresy. Thought that they were heretics. And it's come at me the other direction, too. But I want to make a couple things clear. Although I'm a Calvinist, our denomination is Calvinist, to be an officer in our church, an elder or deacon, you have to be Calvinist. You do not have to be Calvinist to be a member. You do not have to be a Calvinist to be a member. Because we don't think that it's heresy. I think that it's a theological error, but not a heresy. All heresies are errors, but not all errors are heresy. And we actually need to understand that distinction in order to love one another well. Because in some sense, my conversations with my Arminian brothers and sisters have made me a better Calvinist, more careful, a better reader of God's Word. We did exactly what we were supposed to do for each other. So this morning, as we read these texts, You're going to hear a lot of Calvinism, but what I would like you to do is take Ephesians 1 on its own terms. Hear the words that it is saying. Hear what Paul is trying to convince the Ephesian believers of before you just dismiss it outright. He's trying to say, God loves you so much that He chose you, He saves you, He blesses you, and He seals you. That's how much God loves you. Those are going to be our four points today. God chose you, God saves you, God blesses you, and God seals you. That's how you know God loves you. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Coming from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purposes, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So Paul's actually starting this letter to the Ephesians, and as I reminded you last time, this is like actually a letter. Paul's chained to a Roman guard somewhere else under house arrest. And he's writing a letter to these churches that he helped plant. And he starts with this intro and he says, this is who I am, this is who you are, here's what you need to know. You are blessed because of God's sovereign actions. Because he chooses you, because he saves you, because he blesses you and because he seals you. So first, he chooses us. To start this, though, you have to understand that God is fundamentally not human. I've often explained that it would be better for you to imagine God like an alien rather than a grandfather in the sky. Like, I think most of us picture like some Zeus character maybe on like a rocking chair, you know, in heaven. Uh, You know, he's not Zeus. We're not Hercules, like trying to climb our way back to Olympus by doing like great acts. That's a pagan story with pagan gods. I just want to make sure we're, we're clear there. So we're going to throw that out, and we're going to start over. What does the Bible say about God? It says that God is a spirit. It says that God is everywhere. God is simultaneously outside of time and inside of time. God has seen the end before he even wrote the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And although the scripture sometimes describes him as having a body, he doesn't have one. Or lips to speak, vocal cords to make sounds, arms to rescue, or even feet on the foundations of the earth. He cannot simply reside in heaven because heaven itself cannot contain him because he made heaven and the earth. God cannot be thought of on the same terms as us. God is unique. Everything else is created. In theological terms, sometimes we call this the creator-creature distinction. He's the creator. Everything else is created. You are a creature. He is the creator. And there's no blurring of these categories. You might say, well, what about Jesus? Jesus is God and man. But actually, if you were to read through carefully our creeds and confessions, they make very clear that although there is a union of essences, there is no confusion of essences of his humanity and divinity. Why does this matter? (laughs) Like, we're here talking about why God loves us. We've got to talk about how God is totally different than us. Like, who cares, right? Well, it's because it says that God chose us for a specific purpose at a specific time. He chose us to be holy and blameless at the end of verse 4. When did he do it at the beginning of verse 4? Before the foundations of the, of the world. The difference between us and God is how we can make choices. We can't choose to love people before they exist. We can say that we love our children, but before they're conceived, that statement is relatively meaningless, right? But at the same time, we don't have to like know them. Like If we lose the child in miscarriage, we still feel that pain of loss, right? Parental love is a profound thing. What about romantic love? You don't just say that any woman will do, and if you do, your wife wouldn't appreciate it. (laughs) 
Your wife wants to know not just that you would settle for any woman, but that you want her. Not just some indiscriminate thing, you know, among a group. It's insufficient for love. We struggle, though, when we think about God's election, God choosing. Because I think for many of us, we also understand that there's not just everything's going towards sunshine and roses, right? There's also hell. And if God chooses some, that means that God does not choose others. And we think in the name of fairness and in love that God's got to equal the playing field somehow and then put the ball into our court, but that's not actually what you want. You see, the problem that God chooses some and not others is actually a problem that both Calvinists and Arminians have. Because God always has more resources at his disposal to try to convince people to believe in him. Like, just go on a thought experiment with me. Um, God could show up to everyone like he did to Saul on the Damascus Road and blind them and say, you're going to be blind until you go talk to a pastor. And the pastor's going to preach the gospel to you And if you believe the gospel and you say, I believe, then the scales will fall from your eyes and you'll be able to see again. And honestly, I think that that would be much more effective at converting sinners to believe in Jesus than would be a 2,000-year-old book and a preacher who talks too fast. I know I talk too fast. I'm looking at Jean back there. She comments at me every week. I'm working on it a little bit. It's a problem that both Calvinists and Arminians have of why not everyone is saved why God allowed the serpent into the garden in the first place. There are things that God simply doesn't tell us. We call that his secret will sometimes. He chose some and not others. Paul's just announcing it. Now, Paul makes a little bit more explanation in another letter to another church, to the church in Rome. Here's how he puts it there. He says, it's God's right as the creator to destroy that which he has created for a destructive purpose and to glorify that which he has created for a glorifying purpose. You might say it's much like my son who makes a Lego tower just to smash it with his dinosaur. Who are the Legos to say to the master, why have you made me thus? Paul can't explain election. I can't explain election. But he does know this, verse 6, election is to the praise of God's glorious grace. The gift of election proves to us that we are wanted, not just um, a generic person among an indiscriminate body, but you specifically. God wants you. He wants you not, in order, not because you have something to give, not because you inherently had some uh, attributes uh, that, that became manifest, like uh, when you're dating, right? It's like you're dating, right, to, to explore the attributes that the person has before you want to commit to love, and then you might fall in love. I mean, there might be some attributes that are immediately apparent, but we also kind of want to know the rest of the story. And so you say, you know, that's how we decide how to love. Is this person love-worthy in my mind? But God doesn't do that. God loves his enemies and then makes them someone that he loves to make them holy and blameless through Jesus Christ. God chooses and elects you personally. Now, there are some of you that hear this and and immediately, and myself included a little bit, with deep anxiety start to wonder whether or not you're chosen, right? How do I know that I'm chosen? Those who are not chosen 
are not concerned with God's praise or God's glory at all. Now, there are some of you in here who are concerned about Christian things, and I wonder whether or not you're concerned about God's praise and God's glory. There are many people who are not chosen, not chosen, who want to avoid hell. There are many people who are not chosen who want blessings in this life. There are many people who are not chosen who desire that their children would be more moral, and so they take them to church. There are many people who are not chosen who even believe that they might be quite moral and that God might have something to gain from their wealth or their their expertise in something. But make no mistake, although they are blissfully confident they are chosen, they're confident in the wrong things. So what do we do with those doubts? How do I know that I'm chosen? Well, Scripture describes it this way. Do you hear and believe? We're going to get there later in this passage. Do you hear and believe that Jesus paid it all? That you have nothing to offer? That he's not looking for you to be better? That he has chosen you? That he has saved you? That he has blessed you? That he has sealed you? That you are his and that nothing can change it? Do you go back to Scripture and knock to see if the door is open to hear those promises again and again? Because here's the reality about God's promises. We don't always believe them wholly. In fact, I would say we never believe them wholly the first time we hear them. Like when we prayed the sinner's prayer, right, or we signed on the dotted line. We had our entire Christian lives to continue believing the same promises over and over and over again that God wants you, that God saves you, that God blesses you, and that God seals you. Sometimes we are sheep who are far off from the shepherd, and his voice must carry over the hills and valleys of our life. Our ears are deaf, and the shepherd's call must come crashing through. But to the sheep who belong to the good shepherd, they always hear his voice. This is what Jesus has to say. My sheep hear my voice. They will not follow the voice of a stranger. And look at the very end of verse 4. In love, he predestined. Sometimes we think that maybe this is a cold, hard, distant God that just randomly chose, and he just doesn't get emotionally invested in what he's doing. And that's not the story that Ephesians 1 is telling. In love, predestination ought to cause us to rejoice that God has indeed chosen us because we are actually concerned about being chosen. We know that we need it. We know that we don't have what it takes. We need him to come and find us because we are sheep who have lost our way in the valley of the shadow of death. And our good shepherd knows exactly where we are, exactly where we've been. Because we are his, he will lose not one. So we strain our ears against the wind to hear these promises again and again. We go to his word and we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If you want to know, or if you want to have a God who really loves you, you want a God who really chooses you. But not just who really chooses you, but who really saves you. This is our second point. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, this word redemption is interesting. We immediately think like, oh, I know what redemption means. Great. But I just want you to imagine being the Ephesians for a second. And like, how would you go define the word redemption? We'd probably go back to your Old Testament and you would say, well, what does God mean by redemption? And if you went back to the Old Testament and you looked at the greatest example of redemption in the Old Testament that there is, it's the exodus from Egypt. I redeemed you on eagle's wings. God will continue to bring it up over and over again. What? From the house of slavery. You guys remember the story. Moses said, let my people go. There was 10 plagues. God redeemed Israel through dry land of the Red Sea, right, into a land of their own. And all the Hebrews left 
Do you know why? Their chains were broken. They had been set free. They were seeing amazing things happening. They said, of course this God must love us. He's delivering us. God didn't ask the Hebrews permission before saving the Hebrews. He just saved them. God doesn't ask permission to save those that he's chosen today. And that's actually the love that you want. I sometimes hear people use this argument about asking permission, you know, like if God saves you against your will, that he's doing some violence against your will, and that's not really love. And it's usually painted like this. Maybe you've heard this. Ladies, if you had a guy pursue you that just won't leave you alone, and you're like rejecting him over and over again, but he won't accept it, and he keeps pursuing you anyway. Like, is that love? And so the logic supposedly goes, God cannot love us that way. If we're rejecting him, then he says, okay, the ball's in your court. I want real love. The argument, unfortunately, though, drastically misrepresents the biblical imagery of redemption. God is not your boyfriend, your ex-boyfriend. God is not wringing his hands up in heaven hoping that someone might believe in him because we never would. We're not equals. God is not wooing a prospective partner. He's rescuing slaves who are chained to a sinking ship. In fact, the imagery goes even further than just a sinking ship. Like sometimes we talk about this as like we need the medicine of Jesus, right? Like we're almost dead and we need like resuscitation or something like this. But like here's how the Bible describes it. In Ezekiel 37, it talks about dry bones. I don't have time to read it all here, right? But maybe you guys remember it, the valley of dry bones. And what happens is um, they're not sick. They're not drowning. They're dry, which means they're dead, right? And the story of scripture is that dead bones start rattling, God breathes his spirit across the bones, it says in Ezekiel, and they start getting sinews in flesh, and they come alive. And do you think the skeleton sit there and said, I didn't want to be resurrected? No. This is deliverance. This is redemption. This is salvation. Our loving God is less like a boyfriend dropping pickup lines and more like a mother who jumps in front of a bus to save her child. Here's the deal. Her child could be running away from her. Her child could be angry at her. Her child could be running away and never wanting to come back. But do you think the mother cares why the child was running away? The mother cares very little about how blind the child might be or how comfortable they might be sitting in the middle of the road as a bus is coming on. The mother pushes the child out of the road, takes the brunt of the bus herself, and the child, looking at the horror that was there on the cross, says, surely this God loved me. He saved me. There was no time for permission, no time for asking. And upon seeing the sacrifice of the mother, the child's life is forever changed. They say, I may have doubted my mother's love at one point, but I don't doubt it now. She truly loved me despite my hardness of heart. God loves us by not just providing the opportunity of salvation. God loves us by saving us. So God loves us by choosing us and by saving us. And the third thing we're going to see is that God also loves us by blessing us. That's our third point. This is in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This inheritance that we get because we're united to Christ, this inheritance, is that we might be to the praise of of God's glory. And brothers and sisters, I cannot overstate this. This inheritance is invaluable. What the Bible says you were made for, 
was to give praise and glory to God. And I think all of us sit here and we go, how do I do it? <laughs> of course, it's obeying his law, you know, but I do it imperfectly. You know, and so we wonder, how on earth am I going to do what I was made to do? And what God says right here is it's your inheritance by rights because of what Jesus did for you. And of course, we want to believe that our successes are to God's glory. Those times that we have successfully evangelized our neighbors or family, we're like, yeah, that's to God's glory. But do you know what Scripture affirms, actually? Even the awful things in your life are to God's glory. Even your darkest failures are to God's glory. Your broken childhood, to His glory, because He redeemed you. The sins done against you in the dark, one day made right in Jesus with perfect justice. The sins you've committed in the dark, paid for by his blood. You guys remember when we studied David? And it was interesting because David committed many of the same sins that King Saul did. King David and King Saul, there's like this comparison. King Saul's a wicked, but, but they did like the same things. What was the deal? Why is it that we, to this day, continue talking about David as if he's um, exclusively the praise to God's glory? It's because he was predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That even the wicked things in David's life, his sin with Bathsheba, might be to the praise of God's glory, as confounding as that is to us, because it shows us how far God is willing to go to rescue his people and make things right, to resolve a story full of dissonance and brokenness. Predestination does not just apply to New Testament believers. All things are united in Christ Jesus, and that includes David. David's inheritance comes from the same root that yours and I's does, the root of Jesse. Now, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not God, and I don't know what you've experienced in your life, and some of you have experienced truly awful things in your life. And you're hearing me say this, wondering how it can possibly be used to God's praise and God's glory. And in some sense, you're getting a little incensed. Alternatively, some of you have done some very awful things. They haunt your conscience, and you wonder how you can ever be forgiven and made right with, a, with God when you've done such evil. I'd love to pray with you, ask God to give you a glimpse of how it might be used to his praise and glory, but he doesn't promise that we get to see it in this life. But I do know this, although we and others meant it for evil, God means it for good. That comes from the life of Joseph. If you don't know his story, you should go read it. It's in Genesis. I think it'll be enlightening. All wrongs really will be righted, and everything sad really will come untrue. That is what Jesus came to do. We believe it. He loves us so much that he would resolve our entire stories into exactly what we were meant to do. No worry that the past may come back to haunt us in the next life. In him, it is all praise and glory. He's so much bigger than we could possibly imagine. He is infinite. He's the author of the story. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he's declaring to you right here from this text that those who are chosen and redeemed in Christ will also partake of this great inheritance of being able to be praises to God's glory. So God loves us by choosing us, by saving us, by blessing us. And there's one more. It's by sealing us. And this is verse 13. We were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit. You know, in Roman days, how these seals would be used or understood was when the king would give like an edict, right? They'd have a scribe write out a bunch of copies and they'd go put them up on like the community, um, community boards and they'd be sealed with the king's ring. Like the ring that never left the king's hand would be the authenticating factor. that like, this, this is authentic. This is mine. These are my words. So the Holy Spirit is a seal upon your life. But there's actually another word that I think is more helpful in our context, and that's that word, this word guarantee. It's a guarantee of our inheritance. And what this means actually in Roman days, this guarantee was like earnest money. It was a down payment on a property. Now we've maybe dealt with this a little bit, right? It's like you, to take it off the market, you put down your earnest money, and you kind of go through these uh, processes of due diligence to figure out if the house really is something that you should spend the rest of the money on. Right? And we try to make that earnest money you know, enough to hurt, but not so much that you can't get out of it because there are times where you may have to walk away from a deal, right? You go, this house is not worth it. Now, I'd like to ask you a question. If God sealed you, he gave a down payment on you, do you think you'd survive the due diligence period? Like you say, I believe. Like I think all of us do. We say, I believe. And then uh, inexplicably, all of us, Calvinists and Arminians alike, we try to like, earn our righteousness from there on out. We try to be holy by our own power, Right? And even looking at that, after we said I believed, not, not, not including our previous life, we'll say that's all, you know, it's covered by Jesus. But like this now, it's like now I'm responsible for it. Okay, well, that due diligence period, are you going to make it? Because I think if God were to do that due diligence period, really due diligence, he would say absolutely not are any of you worth the blood of my son. I got to get out of this. So what is the down payment? What is like the sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? The earnest money isn't just a little bit of Christ's blood now. It's all of it. And being sealed with the Holy Spirit means being sealed with God himself. I'm going to take you on another thought experiment. Here we go. God the Father not only gave his one and only Son for you, he gave you the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, very God of very God, very light of very light. God himself is the down payment. God who cannot separate himself from himself, right? So he's given you himself. If he were to break the contract, he would break himself in two. In some sense, the earnest money was 100% of the property costs. He said, it's already paid for. I have sealed you and it's the guarantee that I'm going to do it. I cannot go against myself. I cannot yield to you my Holy Spirit, and I will not. The Holy Spirit will work in and through us to make us those people that are holy and blameless by the power of Christ in us, to be those that are pleasing in God's sight so that we actually are then worth it. This is what God is doing in the span of all of human history. Like right now, you might say we're in this weird spot where like the paperwork's all signed and like the wire's coming through, but it hasn't hit your account yet. That's a bad analogy. But God is working all of human history together for his own praise. And in the meantime, he's given us himself as the down payment and the guarantee, which is everything we ever wanted, a restored relationship with God himself. And he made his bodies our temple. So today we've learned that we have a God who wants us, who saves us, who blesses us, and who seals us. God acts alone in all these things. If you were to read this passage again, you would see that God is the subject of almost all of these verbs. According to the counsel of his will, he does it. However, this truth that God is sovereign in salvation, it it doesn't negate our agency. And this is where I think people misunderstand Calvinism sometimes. 
Calvinism correctly defined still affirms human agency. It's sometimes what we call theologically secondary causes. But Calvinism acknowledges that God is always the primary cause, even in salvation. He's the primary one that moves. He never, he never yields that spot of the primary actor to us. He never says, okay, now I want you to make the decision. You know why? Because we wouldn't do it. But with this secondary agency, it's not just fiction. Sometimes in our like, philosophical mindsets, we're like, well, if it's sovereign, it's fatalism, and then we can't have free will. But God isn't human. He writes a different story. And so our agency actually does matter. Look at verse 13. When you heard and believed. When you heard and believed. Who did the action of those verbs? You did. This doesn't mean that all these, prob- these um, promises are suddenly dependent upon our hearing and our believing. I hope you remember the guy that cried, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. No, our belief is a sign that these things are true for us. The fact that we believe means that we are chosen, saved, blessed, and sealed. Paul, in verse 3, tells the Ephesians that they ought to bless God for how they've been blessed. They're supposed to praise the God who wanted them, who loved them so much that he would go to the ends of the earth and into death itself to rescue them. And this he did according to the counsel of his will alone. A God who loves us so much that he chose us before the foundations of the earth, a God who loves us so much that he really truly saves us, a God who loves us so much that he gives us an inheritance greater than we could ask or imagine, a God who loves us so much that he said, you will be my temple and I will indwell you. This God did all of this for you and for me. This God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son, gave the Holy Spirit himself to indwell you. And so the scriptures are fulfilled We love because God first loved us. Now, God intended that we hear these words proclaimed, but also taste this reality upon our lips. The greatest thing that he gave us was Jesus Christ. The greatest thing that he did to redeem us was the blood of our Savior who paid with broken body and shed blood. And so he gave us this sign as a declaration that we do here every week, but as a reminder to our senses, our very senses, not just to our minds, but to our bodies, that these promises are true, that God loves you so much that he would choose you, save you, bless you, and seal you. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. What we acknowledge in this sacrament is not that we don't have doubts, right? Christians throughout their entire lives are going to doubt whether or not these promises are true. And so we go back to God's unchanging word again and again, and we hear these same promises over and over and over again. What we proclaim in this table is, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Now that move to doubts to I believe 
is signified when you are baptized and brought into a community of faith. And so generally we say that this table is for those who have been baptized into Christ Church and are members in good standing. If that's not true for you, I would love to talk with you more about what we talked about today, whether it's Calvinism and Arminianism or how to dedicate your life to Christ or how to be a person that cries out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In a moment, I will pray and then we can come down the center aisle. We've got these serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, Gluten-free is on my left. If you require that, please head that way. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. And then we have these little waste baskets here in these center aisles. If you can just make sure those little cups get thrown away, it helps our sister church. So if you would, please pray with me. Holy God, your love is greater than we could possibly imagine. Father, you loved us enough to choose us, redeem us, bless us, and seal us. Lord Jesus, you loved us enough to go to death itself to rescue us. Holy Spirit, you loved us enough to indwell us, to sanctify us. So we ask you, Holy God, that you would transform these elements, this bread and this wine, from their common use to their spiritual use this morning of blessing and encouragement, that we might know that these promises still stand, that we are still sealed, that you have not forgotten us and you are coming to make all things new. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.